0: The Apostle Paul, he wrote this first letter of Corinthians to the Christians who were in the local church at Corinth, and he wrote this letter in part to correct certain problems in the church, one of which was factions. Members were splitting up into different groups in that church, and they were fighting with each other and they were looking down on one another and these divisions they became very obvious on Sunday when they would come together for worship you can imagine that if we had factions and divisions here in this church that it would become obvious when we all came together on a Sunday well apparently As they came together, certain people with certain gifts and abilities, they were elevated and they were esteemed, while others were sort of marginalized or even flat out ignored. And so chapters 12 through 14 of this letter is Paul addressing those problems that had gone public. So back in chapter 12, Paul reminded the Corinthians that the gifts they had were from God and they were for others. Spiritual gifts are from God and they are for others. And they were especially for the members of their church family, each of which is valuable and equally important. And so while it was fine and good for the church to desire spiritual gifts, there was something that was far more important. And in chapter 12, verse 31, Paul called it a more excellent way. In chapter 13, Paul has unveiled the more excellent way, and it is love. Which is the costly effort to do what is best for the beloved. This was the heart of the problem at Corinth. This was at the root of their divisions. They lacked love. And so Paul writes this chapter in particular to instruct the Corinthians to use their gifts and abilities and opportunities that God had given them to love one another, to do what was best for one another. So at this point in our study, Paul has pointed out both the indispensability of love and the nature of of love he has said look remarkable ministry and even selfless service without love it means nothing therefore love one another love is indispensable he gave a description of love in likely the most well-known passage in the bible In this chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, and there we learn that love is not a feeling, love is a force. Love is not mere sentiment, it is action. Love rejoices, love bears, it believes, it hopes, it endures all things. Well, Paul has one more thing to say about love. One more thing before he moves on to other things, and it is this. Love never ends. Love never ends. And this is intended by Paul to be further and final reason for the Corinthians to love one another. And so, taking our directions from the text. This morning's sermon is about the endlessness of love. And remember as we move forward that we are reading and studying the Word of God. And in the Word of God alone, you learn who you are. And more importantly, you learn who God is and how you may love Him and worship Him. And so we need God's help so that we would understand His Word and ultimately be changed by His Word. Will you please bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, help us with Your Word today. Motivate us. Encourage us to love one another. And fill our Minds with truth and our hearts with love for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 902. Remember, Paul's aim in this chapter, it has been to motivate the Corinthians to use the gifts that God had given them to love one another. And here in this text is one more motivation, the endlessness of love. Before this sermon, it's worth noting that Paul says what he wants to say here in Three steps or three stages, which we will follow. So if you are taking notes, here they are. First, he makes his point. And he does that in verses 8 through 10. He makes his point. Second, Paul illustrates his point. And that is in verses 11 and 12. And then third, he underscores his point verse 13. Paul makes his point, he illustrates his point, and then he underscores his point. So let's begin in verses 8 through 10, where Paul makes his point, which he initially states in just three words, love never ends. On the heels Of Valentine's Day, we should be careful not to water down this phrase to romantic sentiment. This is greater. This is far greater than something a loving husband might write on a card to his wife. This is deeper. This is greater. Paul's point, love never ends. Some of your translations, if you're not using the one that I'm reading from, the English Standard Version, some of your translations may say fail. If you have the New International Version or New American Standard, I think even the King James Version, it says love never fails. That's just another way to translate this Greek word "pepto." It's also translated in other parts of the Bible as fall or fall apart. You could say love never falls apart. Those are all good translations of the word. And they all are talking about the same thing. But the ESV is It takes a cue from the context by getting at the longevity of love. In other words, love never fails. Love never falls apart in the sense that love triumphs forever. This is temporal talk in this context. So love never fails in the sense that love triumphs forever. Or love holds together endlessly. Or love survives into eternity. Or simply, love never ends. Now in the rest of verse 8 through verse 10, Paul makes his point clear through a comparison. So look with me. He clarifies here the endlessness of love by contrasting it with the brevity of spiritual gifts and not just any spiritual gifts but the spiritual gifts that the corinthians possessed and prized and boasted in he writes verse 8 love never ends and now here is the contrast as for prophecies a gift the corinthians boasted in they will pass away. As for tongues, another one, they will cease. As for knowledge, that is special illumination, it will pass away. So you see the comparison. There are three gifts that, unlike love, will not survive into eternity. Now ask yourself, Of all the gifts that Paul could mention, why is he harping on these three gifts? And he's harping on them over and over again. He mentioned them in chapter 12, verses 29 and 30. And then again, at the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 and 2. And... Look at the beginning of chapter 14. Some of you will have a heading. These gifts are the main subject of chapter 14. Well, remember, these are the gifts that the Corinthians prized to the point of division. It worked like this. Whoever possessed those spiritual gifts received special treatment. In the Corinthian church. And so the point Paul is making. Is this. Love. Which Paul is saying. Is what I am elevating. Which is what I am prizing. Love. This. Will not pass away. But the spiritual gifts like prophecy, tongues, and this knowledge that you are elevating, they will pass away. That's the contrast. That's the point that he's making. Love will not come to an end, but you know what will come to an end? The very things that you are elevating, namely prophecy and tongues and knowledge. He goes on in verses 9 through 10 to prove his point. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. He's saying these gifts were temporary because they were only partial. The knowledge they had and the prophecy they had, it was fragmentary. It wasn't complete. And one day, Paul writes, when the perfect comes, when Jesus returns, they will see Christ face to face. Look at verse 12. They will see Christ face to face. And these gifts will no longer be necessary. And so they will pass away. What's his point? But not so with love. Love will never end. So there Paul makes his point. And he does it by contrasting the brevity of spiritual gifts with the longevity of love. These amazing abilities that some of the Corinthians had, they, they were not going to last. They were transient, but love Paul is saying, is permanent. As Archibald Robertson wrote, love survives everything. Love never ends. Spiritual gifts belong to this age, to the age of the church. But love belongs to the ages. Or in just three words, love Never ends. We're ready to move on to the next stage of Paul's argument. In verses 11 through 12. He illustrates his point, And there are. Look with me. Two illustrations. And together. They show that. Our knowledge of God. Now is limited. Compared to our knowledge of God. Then. The first illustration is in verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Here's the illustration. Christians are like children. And the way they understand and relate to God now is immature compared to how they will understand and relate to God in heaven. The gifts the Corinthians boasted in were like childish ways that they would one day give up because they would no longer have need for them. But not so with love. His second illustration is in verse 12. And it refers to the image we see in a mirror. He writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our knowledge, Christians... Our knowledge of Christ now, it is limited. But one day, we will see Him face to face and we will know Him as He has known us. For today, it's like the difference between seeing someone in person and seeing them in a photograph. A reflection or a photograph is no substitute for the real person. Richard Pratt says in his commentary for Paul, the gifts of the Spirit are the photographs the church has access to now. When Christ returns, however, then everyone will see face to face. For now... Paul says to the Corinthians, they knew God partially, but one day they would know him fully. And at that point, these spiritual gifts would no longer be necessary, but not so with love. Now, finally, we come to verse 13. Where Paul underscores his point. He stresses the point here, expands it, affirms it. Verse 13, so now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. You might call this the big three. Faith, hope, and love. Those are three powerhouse activities of a Christian. And Paul writes that the greatest of these is love. Well, in what sense? In what sense is love greater than faith and hope? Because faith and hope. Are great. So how is love greater? Maybe Leon Morris is right. He says, love occupies the supreme place. God cannot be said to exercise faith or hope, but he certainly loves and indeed is love. Is that what Paul is getting at? Love is greater because love alone is an attribute that we share with God. Or maybe Charles Hodge is right when he says that love is more useful. Throughout that chapter, the ground of preference of one gift to others is made to consist in its superior usefulness. This is Paul's standard, and judged by this rule, love is greater than either faith or hope. Faith saves ourselves, but love benefits others. Love is more Useful. Maybe that's what Paul means. Those are great answers. And certainly part of the answer. But paying close attention to the context of Paul's argument, it seems to me that love is greater than even faith and hope in that it never ends. Faith, at least according to its definition in Hebrews 11, 1, will end. Now faith, the author of Hebrews writes, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And remember verse 12, Paul is talking about a day when they will see Jesus face to face. Hope, at least according to its definition in Romans 8, 24, will end. Paul writes there, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for those? For who hopes for what he sees? And remember again, verse 12, Paul is talking about a day when we will see Jesus face to face. So faith and hope will not, according to those two definitions, faith and hope will not continue on into eternity, but love will. And so Paul underscores his point, love never ends. So that's the passage broken down before us. Paul made his point, illustrated his point, underscored his point, which was love never ends. Unlike the spiritual gifts that were prized by the Corinthians, love would last forever. Therefore, love must be their highest priority And they must use the gifts and the opportunities that God had given them to love one another. Now, what does this mean for us today? What does this text mean for us today? That's what it meant for the Corinthians. But how are we to apply this? Well, like the Corinthians, love needs to be our highest priority. We're no different from them in that sense. We also need to use the gifts and the abilities and the opportunities that God has given you and that God has given me. It's not for us. It's for others. And so we need to use them for the good of others. To love others. In John 13... Verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this to his first followers. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So like the Corinthians... We should love one another. And like the Corinthians, we become distracted. At least I do. Most of us understand what it's like to want to love and to feel convicted to love and to know that we need to love, but to have our focus taken We get distracted or selfish. Our distractions may not be an overemphasis on spiritual gifts, but we have our own. And yet, love must be our highest priority. So the call for the Corinthians to love is the same as the call for us is to love. We should. As Henry Drummond wrote in a famous sermon, we should without distinction, without calculation, and without procrastination, love. We should love without distinction, without calculation, and without procrastination. We too should love. And then here to motivate us, It worked for them like it works for us. To motivate us, the Holy Spirit, by the words of Paul, has reminded us this morning of the endlessness of love. And that should motivate us to love one another. One author writes, Love endures forever. It is not designed and adapted as are the gifts under consideration merely to the present state of existence but to our future and immortal state of being. So loving one another is something that you and I will do for all eternity. It's a motivation for us to love. Loving one another is something that you and I will do for all eternity. And so we ought to love one another now. That's the force of Paul's argument. His motivation. Now. Christians. The reality of the endlessness. Of our love for one another is not owing to our greatness, but God's. We're going to love one another endlessly, but that is not owing to our greatness, but God's. We could go there. We love one another now. We're going to love one another forever. Nothing will stop our love as Christians for one another Therefore, we are great. We are spectacular. We are amazing. No matter what obstacles come our way, the distractions, we will work through them. And here and in heaven, we are going to love one another forever. This is naturally how we want to bend every text to like echo our own worth and our own value. But that's not the deal. The endlessness of our love for one another is rooted in and enabled by the endlessness of God's love for us. So the endlessness of our love for one another, that is rooted in and that is enabled by God's endless love for us. I'm sure Paul assumes that. As he writes, he knows what the Gospels teach. He knows this is true. Samuel Lewis Johnson, one of my favorite preachers. He wrote, the love of one Christian for another is the outcome of our love for the Lord God and our love for the Lord God is the outcome of the love of Jesus Christ for us. So he's. Tracing back the fountainhead, getting to the root of our love for others. Our love for others is the outcome of our love for Jesus. And our love for Jesus is the outcome of Jesus' love for us. That's exactly what John wrote in 1 John chapter 4. In 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another. Same thing Paul is saying. Love one another. where does that love come from? For love, he writes, is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. When you see Christians loving one another, that is evidence that they have been born again. That they know God and have been born of God. Because Christians can't love one another the way they're supposed to without first being shown the love of God. He goes on in verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God But that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation. For our sins beloved. If God so loved us. We also ought to love. One another. So. In order for us to love one another. We must know. The love of God. In order for us to love one another, we must know the love of God. Do you? Do you know the love of God for you, Christian? Do you just know of the love of God? Do you just know information about the so-called love of God for you? Or do you know, experientially, the love of God for you? Do you know the endlessness of God's love for you? That is the motivation to love one another. Do you think about it? I mean, do you set time aside? Planned, unplanned? As you hear about it in a song or read about it in the Bible or hear about it from a preacher or just have the thought come to you by the Holy Spirit in the middle of your day? Do you pause? Do you think about it? Do you know God's love for you. God's love never ends. His love does not tire or quit. I would have given up loving me a long time ago. I think that about. My wife, and I think that about my kids, that I'm surprised they didn't give up loving me a long time ago. And they don't know me nearly as well as God knows me. And God knows you, Christian. God knows everything about you, Christian. He knows what no one else knows. He knows your thoughts, He knows your heart. He knows all your inclinations. He knows all your desires. He knows every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will commit. He knows you more fully than anyone could ever possibly know you, and He loves you. And His love for you never ends, it never grows tired, it doesn't quit. He loves even when his love is rejected. No one does that. We only know that love in God. His love triumphs forever. His love holds together endlessly. His love survives into eternity. Think of verses in the Bible like Hosea chapter 11 verse 4. The book of Hosea is written to people who were not being faithful. Is a kind and censored way to put it. Hosea is written to people whom God had loved and were not loving God back. Which could often be said of most of us. And it says this in Hosea 11.4. This is God's heart. I led them with cords of kindness. With the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. What a loving picture of God's love for rebellious, wicked people even. Do we Christians think about verses like this and bring those verses alongside what we know to be true of our own failures and our own sins? And do those truths merge and we think about God's love for us and how great His love is for us? And then are we motivated? By the endlessness of God's love for us to love one another, are we moved by God's word? Or maybe, as I close, you'll be moved by the story behind the song, "O oh love that will never let me Go. Its author, George Matheson, he knew, the endlessness of God's love. He was a Scottish minister and hymn writer in the 1800s. And when he was 20 years old, he was engaged to be married, and he began to go blind. His fiancée decided that she was unwilling to go through life with a blind man. And she left him. And he never married. George's sister, she took him in to care for him. And with her help, he pastored and preached to a church of 1,500 people. But 20 years later, after 20 years of being cared for and looked after by his sister... On the eve of his sister's marriage, George was left alone while family and friends left him to prepare for the wedding. And he was overwhelmed with grief and fear. He was overwhelmed with grief as he looked back and remembered his own wedding that almost was on the eve now of his sister's wedding. He was grieved all over again. And he was filled with fear. His sister, who had been caring for him for 20 years, was now going to leave and care for her own husband. So on that night, he was overwhelmed with fear and grief. The reality of a life ahead, of loneliness, it settled in. And right then, he wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Never Let Me Go. And later, he remarked that that hymn took him five minutes to write. And it was the only song, he said, that he ever wrote that did not require any further editing. So it just poured out from him on that night. I'll read you the four verses. O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine oceans depths its flow may richer, fuller be. O light, followest all my way. I yield my flickering towards to thee. My heart restores its borrowed ray, and in thy sunshine's blaze its day may brighter, fairer be. O joy, that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I chase the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not in vain, that morn shall tearless be. O cross, that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory dead. And from the ground there blossoms red. Life that shall endless be. Christian. Do you know the endless love of God the way your brother George Matheson did? Do you know God's endless love for you? For those of you who are not Christians, you could know this love of God. If you would turn to Jesus. If you are here today and you are not a Christian. Your greatest need is reconciliation with God. You are not at peace with God. And He is not at peace with you. He is a perfect God. A holy God. He created everything. He created you. And He created you to love Him. And He created you to worship Him. And he created you not to live for yourself, but he created you to live for him. And you have not. You have rejected God. You know this. You have rebelled against God. You have not worshipped him. You have not given him your life. You have not loved him as you should. And listen. There is nothing worse. There is just nothing worse. Than not loving and worshipping and honoring. The holy God who is the creator of the universe. And so. If nothing changes, as a sinner, one day you will die. And on that day when you die, you will not go to be in the presence of the Lord. You will go to be outside of his presence. And sin, your sin and my sin, it is so bad that you will be punished. Forever and ever in hell. The good news is that God has made a way for you to be reconciled to Him. God has made a way for you to be at peace with Him. And the way is Jesus. And Jesus came and He lived. And He suffered. And he died and he conquered death and rose from the dead. And he did all this in the place of sinners like you. So that a sinner like you could be reconciled to God. But you must hear this good news and not just hear it. But believe it and turn from your sin and turn to Jesus and live in faith to him. And if you do, the promise is that you will know the love of God forever because his love never ends. We remember this love every week as Christians when we take communion together. We have symbols, don't we, that have been left for us of this love of God. This bread and this juice, which are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus that was given for us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are remembering and proclaiming the Lord's sacrificial death this morning. You are invited to take communion with us if you are a baptized believer. If you have confessed your sin and placed your trust for salvation in the work of Christ and in him alone. And if you are committed to a local church, whether it's this or another one that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today, we'll have leaders up front, as you know, to serve you. We ask that you come forward and take the bread and take the juice and hold on to them and return to your seat and then we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, We thank you for your word. We thank you for making known to us that your love does not just last for a short time, but that it lasts forever. We thank you, God, that because you love us so much that not only do you use even our pain and our suffering for our good, but that you promise that mercy will come and relief will come. Help us, God, to trust You, to love You the way we should. We pray that our understanding of Your love for us would would widen and deepen so that we would love one another more so. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.